Welcome to Good God, Conversations That Matter About Faith and Public Life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I'm delighted to have another episode in our uh, continuing series called Good Politics. Our guest today is Faison Syed, and he is the executive director of CARE DFW. That's C-A-I-R. It's an acronym that stands for the Council of American Islamic Relations. And uh, Faison, it's so good to have you with us. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, you're welcome. Well, let me give you a little, little more biographical uh, background uh, on you. Uh, born in Pakistan and uh, raised in the US and uh, in actually um, St. Louis uh, area and uh, educated in Iowa and uh, has uh, served in this um, uh, advocacy work, uh, promoting understanding of Muslims in American society and in, in communities and uh, trying to work for the common good uh, and also to defend um, the Muslim community uh, against misunderstandings left and right uh, that, that occur. Uh, as well. So is there anything else you would like to say about uh, care and your uh, particular sense of calling to do that kind of work? Well, let me try to uh, paint the picture. So, you know, when I was in college, I was studying astronomy, physics, and mathematics, like a good Pakistani Indian uh, <laughs> son. And then I found my true calling in uh, 2008. That's when the uh, presidential election were going on. And Iowa being the first caucus state of the country, you know, we had all these uh, presidential uh, figures coming to our state, including like Hillary Clinton, John McCain, Ted Cruz the first time around, and even a young African-American senator from Illinois had no chance of winning, Barack Obama, who'd come to our university. So that's when I switched to politics and history, uh, and, and I, that's where I graduated in. And then, of course, afterwards, when I was uh, graduated from college, you know, shockingly, there's not that many jobs for like political, uh, political science and history majors and physics, math, astronomy minors. So I found my calling with CARE because at that time, there's a crown, the ground zero mosque controversy that was happening in New York City with those par 51 building that's being built several blocks away from where the Twin Towers had collapsed. Um, and that created a nationwide controversy. So that's when I first learned about the work of CARE because on the news, you had all these um, CARE representatives coming on speaking, not only defending the right for that center to be built, but also reminding Americans that we are a country of religious pluralism, that we're a country that welcomes different faith traditions and to stand against hatred and things like that. So that was my calling with CARE. I applied and that <laughs> I've been working with CARE ever since. Well, you, you know, you mentioned the Cordova House uh, in, in New York that was trying to build uh, that community center uh, in the shadow of uh, the Twin Towers and all of that. The irony about that whole thing uh, actually, I think, goes to the challenge you have uh, in your work in America overall. And that is, this is a particular group of Muslims that uh, was uh, drawing upon uh, the sort of medieval, beautiful uh, period of time in Spain and the city of Cordoba, where, where Muslims, Jews, and Christians were all talking with one another and working together in this absolutely remarkable uh, period of uh, interfaith relations and intellectual stimulation and all of that. And so here's, here's a group of Muslims trying to drive toward that unity but their very presence, their very presence uh, was uh, deemed to be a threat and insensitive. And so uh, overall here you find yourself in this work 
And as a Pakistani uh, who uh, is uh, also, by the way, married to a Jordanian, so there's a, a Middle Eastern connection too uh, for you. Uh, you are in school in Iowa, for heaven's sake, you can't be more white Christian middle America than that. And here you are, right? Uh, uh, a Pakistani, uh, dark complected with a, a dark beard and a Muslim. Oh my goodness, you're all the things that make people scared, right? Mm. And yet you move toward this calling, toward understanding. What is that feel like on a day-to-day -day basis? What is the, the, the ongoing challenge of that to you? It's an extremely awarding calling to be in because America has always had really amazing ideals, a nation where all men are created equal. Of course, that excludes women, but you know, getting to the idea that all men are created equal, that people have certain inalienable rights that are enshrined from a higher power, higher perspective. So that's the calling of our nation. However, America's always struggled to live up to that calling, right. whether it's with dealing with African-Americans with a three-fifth compromise that actually happened in St. Louis, Missouri, believe it or not, yes. uh, or uh, women's suffrage movements or the internment of Japanese or things of this nature. However, every generation of Americans fought, struggled, whether it was uh, unfortunately militarily or protesting on the streets or petitioning the government to expand the tent of what it means to be an American. Today in the 21st century, we are now living in one of the most unique times because America for the first time in her history is going to be in the next few decades without a majority, an ethnic majority. Right. And as that happens, there's a lot of fear that's being drawn up by politicians, by individual groups and, and folks who feel like they'll be left out. And that fear is then exploited. However, what we try to do, and I think what every uh, previous generation try to do is that to be an American is an idea, not an ethnicity. And that idea itself is wide enough that anybody can be American, regardless of your your immigrant status or where you came from, your ethnicity or things like that. And that challenge to try to educate others and to build a nation that's built off those ideals is something that I continue to fight today. And what better cause is there than that? Well, I, I'm sure that there, uh, since 9-11, things have gotten even more challenging for the Muslim community. And, uh, and, and I imagine that there is also a, a kind of temptation to sort of hide your particular faith in a way in order to be fully American, right? And this program, Good God, is going in the absolute opposite direction. And that is to say, we want you to bring your faith into the public square, tell us who you are, what motivates you, those sorts of things. And so, you know, when you find yourself engaging in local politics and state and national politics, that sort of thing, uh, tell us about how you bring your faith in this more volatile place, because yes, you're right. Uh, we, we're called on to, you know, live up to these ideals, but there's still a sort of default Christian culture that is wary of, uh, of other religious uh, convictions and what they might mean for uh, our future public life. Of course. And the reality is that after September 11th, as a nation, we saw an increase in anti-Muslim bigotry and hate crimes. Mm -hmm. However, believe it or not, Kerry tracked these uh, incidents, and we saw within one year after September 11th that hate crimes actually went to pre-September 11th levels. 
which is really astonishing as a nation. However, in 2007, 2008, we saw a spike. And that spike continues to this day. So now uh, anti-Muslim discrimination and hate crimes are actually at three times the level they were even after September the 11th. So, uh, you know, intuitively you might think, well, why is that happening? Because every day you go past the initial incident, you would think people would forget it go into collective memory and people would not be as riled up. However, what we saw happening in 2007, 2008 is we saw the politicization of Islamophobia as a tool in order to win office, in order to uh, actually drive campaigns. And that specifically started with Barack Obama. So when Barack Obama was elected as president, A, it was a shock to a portion of American society being the first African-American, very black president, right? Whose name is Barack Hussein Obama. Uh, but the other issue is that there were uh, attacks against him. Now in this nation, you know, racial attacks are really frowned upon. So nobody can politically do racial attacks. So people can't go out there and be like, we hate this guy because he's black. So instead, it was like, we hate this guy because he's not American. He wasn't born in America. Actually, he's a secret Muslim. Actually, he's in a, he has an agenda and these type of things. So it was only after the election of Barack Obama that we saw sort of the birther movement start, this idea that Barack Obama is a secret Muslim, and then the politicization uh, of Islamophobia as a weapon that's being utilized. And that, of course, still exists to this day. To address your question specifically about how we navigate um, political sphere specifically, it, it's definitely a challenge. So in the great state of Missouri, which is where I'm from, or as we call Missouri, right? You know, the Texas, legis uh, the Missouri legislator is very heavily uh, Republican. And of course, you know, as care, we don't support Republican or Democrats, but to talk uh, when policy terms. So it's a very heavy Republican state. Uh, it's two thirds majority and things of that nature. So in that state, they also introduced anti-Sharia legislation and anti-boycott, divestment, and sanction of Israel legislation. So when it comes to the anti-Sharia legislation, you know, we had to figure out like, how are we going to make sure that this legislation doesn't get passed in Missouri, even though it basically got passed in every other Midwest state and about 35 states passed. Missouri didn't pass it, actually. And the reason is because in Missouri, we used a campaign where we would target very rural uh, elected officials in very rural Missouri, right? Because there are small Muslim communities there. Uh, there's small Islamic centers there. There are butchers there. Uh, and I'm talking about 30 families, 40 families. So what we would do is we would actually invite these officials to the local Islamic center. In Ramadan, we invite them to the iftar, breaking the fast meal. They tour the center. They learn from the community. And just with a small connection with their constituents, these officials who are Republican were the few that actually voted against it, and that's what killed the bill from passing. So it's one of those situations that I, I really like what you're doing because in America, what we do is we actively vilify others, right? There's a whole industry based off of that, how your neighbor is basically like devil incarnate and, and they hate everything about you. And we, and we fail to find the humanity in others. And I don't just mean in faith tradition, I mean political traditions as well. So for us, we have the choice to be like, all right, these guys in the middle of nowhere, Missouri, they're as, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever you know, whatever, any type of stereotype you want to give them. However, the stereotype that we gave them is that their tradition is that they're very hospitable, that they care about their neighbors and they care really about their community. Mm -hmm. So once we were able to utilize that, introduce them to their local community, introduce them to their neighbors, they were able to take political risks. And that is one of the reasons why Missouri never, uh, uh, never passed these bills. Um, and, I, and I really urge their audience, be careful of thinking that you're self-righteous and others are not, because <laughs> that's, how, that's what perpetuates um, 
I don't know, like just discord and basically like evil in society, right? right. When people really look at each other uh, as villains rather than looking at each other with the humanity that they have. So the cost of not doing this work is also something to be considered. And uh, just before our uh, podcast, we were talking actually about a period of time in the Ottoman Empire uh, in Turkey when um, you've been sort of paying attention to uh, history and how um, there were other moments like the one we are in maybe now. Tell us more about your study of that and, and what was taking place in Turkey during that period. Well, you know, I'm a student of history. I'm actually writing uh, a, a new book or a, a webinar series about Islamic history because a lot of it isn't really well known by Muslims, let alone people of other faiths. So one of the interesting things about Islamic history is that Muslims have always governed fairly large empires that are always multi-religious, multi-ethnic, and, and, and really uh, very, very diverse, right? Especially compared to societies we have today. In the Ottoman Empire, after the... Um, Spanish Inquisition happened, Istanbul or Constantinople historically was 35% Jewish. To put that in perspective, in America, the African-American population is 10% of the population. So there's large populations of Jews, large population of Eastern Orthodox Christians, a large population of Greeks, Armenians, and other folks as well. And what happened is that in that multi-faith society, the Ottoman Empire created what's called the millet system. And the millet system, it's, you know, we don't need to get too much into it. Basically, it's a system where every uh, ethnic and religious group is basically put into a category. And they're allowed to create their own religious courts. They're allowed to have their own, um, you know, religious freedom. But from an American perspective, one step higher in that you can actually go to court and say, you know, the Bible or the Torah, the Quran says this. Therefore, the, the court, which is big by and large, the secular court, will actually rule in favor of religious law, right? If you're part of that. So it's a very unique system. So even though you had 35% Jewish population, even though you had about 22 or 28%, um, especially in Istanbul, you know, Eastern Orthodox Christians and, and Muslims, people lived bubbled lives. And mm. what I mean by that is even though they all work together, even though they all went to the marketplace together, they did not learn about one another's faith traditions or one of their cultures, except on a very, you know, uh, uh, minimal level, right? So there's not a lot of scholarship of interfaith dialogues happening at that time. There's not a lot of scholarship on um, this type of communication that we're having right now. And what ended up happening is that system worked very well because it, it allowed all these faith traditions to believe that the Ottoman system is great, everybody's welcome, so they supported it. How, when the Ottoman Empire began to collapse, right, and uh, there's a, a nationalist fervor and other fervors as well, these societies and the communities who lived next to each other for really hundreds of years, they began to um, create mobs and they actually began to uh, unfortunately attack one another. And this is sort of part of the Ottoman breakup. So there's real consequences to not really find the humanity and other learning about other faith, other communities, especially in a, a diverse community such as the United States. Uh, and, and an example of that uh, is what happened in just recently with the capital insurrection that we saw, where you had many people who went to the capital, and those people now have attorneys so we can hear about their psychology. So they said that they thought what they're doing is right. They thought they were protecting America. They thought that they 
uh, were doing was in the interest of keeping freedom uh, and justice for all people. However, in hindsight, after the incident happened, they realized the crime that they were doing. So the reality is that this type of division is being exploited in America today. There are politicians, individuals, media outlets, and others who financially benefit or politically benefit from it. And unless the population understands that, there's no reason why what happened in the Ottoman Empire can also not one day happen in the United States where literally neighbors might attack one another, where you might see political division get so entrenched that it can lead to really a, a situation that none of us want to be a part of or live in. Right. So uh, as, as you do that work, promoting understanding and uh, having dialogues and uh, engaging with uh, people of other religions uh, and, and explaining Islam to them uh, in, in these ways, there are also moments, and part of CARE's mission and yours is to engage in advocacy work, mm -hmm. uh, that, that that touches on public policy, on laws, and on um, rules that are taking place in school systems and those sorts of things. So uh, I, I think it would be interesting for people to know, how do you view the role of advocacy within uh, the Muslim community and as part of CARE's mission. What are some of the things that you all are looking at and engaging about as advocates? And how do you, uh, how do you engage in defense of the Muslim community and also at the same time to promote the common good? That's right. So let me give you a little bit of history about it. You know, by and large, the Muslim population that we see in the United States is fairly recent, right? So there have been historical African-Americans who convert to Islam from the nation of Islam. You also had, you know, migration of Muslims uh, historically. But the big chunk of the Muslim community that you see, the big Islamic center that you see across the country, happened in the last 30 or 40 years. Right. A lot of that because of the 1960s and Immigration Rights Act that changed sort of the um, quota system of who could come to the United States. And really in the 90s, 80s and 90s is when we saw larger immigrant populations coming to the US. So that's a little bit of our, our, our history. We're a very new community. Because that political activism and advocacy really didn't exist in the psyche of the Muslim community until after September the 11th, and more so after the election of President Obama, we saw the mainstreaming of Islamophobia inside the political sphere. Uh, examples, President Bush, he actually said, you know, there's a difference between terrorism and Muslims. Uh, and that was kind of the mainstream narrative in the United States. But after Obama got elected, that kind of went out the window. Our activism really started on a national level because of the anti-Sharia movement. Right. So there's a movement inside the United States that basically said that Sharia law is trying to take over the United States. Um, and that, you know, they're, that the Muslims are the fifth column in the country and they can't be trusted and you can't trust them as much as you can trust an Irish person 30 years ago, right? So it, it was that type of uh, language that we saw. So because of that, that's when Muslims for the first time in this nation's history started to really do capital days. So in Missouri, the first capital day we did was we brought 200 Muslims from across the state of Missouri to Jefferson City to meet their elected officials for the first time was in response to the anti-Sharia movement. Um, and of course, within the Muslim community, if we would have gone to them earlier and been like, hey, we should go to the capital, people would like, you know, why, right? You know, we have a good job. We are getting educated. What's the point, right? Yeah. Um, so it was, it was in response to those attacks that Muslims started to do in that. And then there's also a response to the second wave, which is sort of the anti-BDS um, bills that are introduced. So these are bills that basically outlaw 
the right to boycott, divest, and sanction the state of Israel. I don't want to talk necessarily about that issue, but particularly those bills would target the Muslim community because right. they would create frivolous lawsuits based on the fact that you're Arab, right? Like the fact that you're, you know, whatever it is, right? So that's sort of the underlining ideas of these bills. So, um, so that was the second wave of activism that happened. So it was really the community being targeted, so we have to respond. After that happened, now there is more of a mainstreaming of activism within the community that the that the larger Muslim community understands that their role is that they are Americans and they have to advocate for issues not only impacting Muslims but also impacting the larger society. A lot of that's because again, most Muslims came in the 80s and 90s, like my parents. My father and his generation, you know, they're just trying to survive. So they're not really caring about America and the larger issues that are happening. Their children though are. Right. And they're the ones that are now going on the streets and advocating for these different issues and causes. Some of the issues that the community advocates for is now becoming more mainstream. So, for example, in Texas, we just did our most recent Capital Day, uh, which was virtual. And in that Capital Day, we weren't talking about Muslim specific issues like we historically did. We focused more on the George Floyd Act to make it um, to basically hold police accountable and to end a certain series of things that, that would actually address racial injustice. We also focused on voting rights and expanding voting rights in the in the state of uh, Texas. And then the third one is, believe it or not, Texas has right after Martin Luther King Day, they have Confederate Memorial Day, right, in Texas. Yes. So uh, we also advocated that we should probably get rid of that holiday as well. <laughs> so, so now, so now that activism is now moving in that direction. I think all faith communities should be involved in activism and advocate for issues and cause that they support. Um, but move beyond the notion of what are the issues that I care about because, you know, you know, the Quran says something, but issues that as Muslims, we care about fairness in, in society. We care about justice. We care about these things. So, so try to find those issues and advocate for those type of causes. Terrific. So uh, you mentioned Sharia and it is an ongoing matter of misunderstanding, I think, uh, among uh, Americans generally. Uh, it, it is, uh, Sharia is about the application of Islamic law uh, in everyday life, right? And uh, this is not terribly unlike uh, the Jewish system of halakha, uh, which is also a system of regulating Jewish uh, behavior and law um, in, in an everyday way. Uh, so what would you want to say to people who are unfamiliar and who are worried uh, that Sharia will become uh, something that uh, overcomes uh, civil law in the U.S. Uh, when, as I understand Sharia, it's always supposed to be subjugated to, uh, in whatever culture you are, the prevailing systems of law uh, and is instead only to be practiced within the community in a sense. So tell us a little more about what we should know when these, when these issues come up. Right. Let me tell you, uh, I'll focus on two things. First and foremost, the vilification of Sharia has nothing to do with Sharia law. Uh, that should first and foremost be understood. Nobody cares about Sharia law in America, and even the politicians that pass it. When I spoke to many of them, they don't know what they're doing. The whole idea is to treat the Muslim community as communism was treated in America as well. Mm -hmm. 
which is this notion that there are these undercover communists who are trying to overthrow the capitalist democratic system in order to imply, you know, communists, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever type of thing. So that's the idea. You just replace the word communism and you replace the word with, you know, you know, McCarthyism and people being secret communists with Muslims and Sharia. So that's the notion is to create a fear-based society that can then be exploited in order to win election, in order to win votes, in order to uh, push a specific type of agendas. So it's not to do with Sharia or things like that. Uh, and it has everything to do with that. And the same can be said when President John F. Kennedy was elected that there was a mainstream fear of Catholics being taken, taking over America and the Pope, right. you know, the secret right. ruler. Uh, same thing with Japanese that they're, you know, secretly going to follow the emperor of Japan and be a fifth column. It, it, the same exact fear is happening. And now it's Muslims. Of course, now that China's rising, we have other now mainstream political threats. The whole idea of Sharia and Muslims as a threat is really diminishing in the country. It has nothing to do with the fact that we were good at educating populations. It's not that the U.S. has different threats that they're focused on. Getting to Sharia specifically, though, Sharia law is everything that has to do with Islam. So believing in God is part of Sharia. Being good to your parents is part of Sharia. With that, there's also a civil code. So for example, when I get got married to my wife, who's from Jordan, I didn't go to a church and, and you know make my vows in that sense. We did it sort of like the Islamic way of, of getting married. And of course, we also got like a court document that said we're married as well. One thing that folks have to understand about Sharia is that Sharia is not designed to impose itself on other 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 uh, communities. It really is a holistic and I would argue a very secular basis of law. Because again, Muslims have governed large populations of multi-religious, multi-ethnic communities. In most of our history, the people who are not Muslim make up the majority of the society versus the Muslim population. So Sharia from the beginning has been, I would argue, fairly secular in its overall nature. And then it creates things like the millet system in which other faith traditions can have their own courts and things of that nature. So that's something that I really want the audience to understand is that Sharia in its very nature is everything has to do with the religion. It includes how we pray, how we worship, how we do these things. And the part where Sharia law meets the actual law in the United States has to do with a few things. Number one, halal meat, right? So for example, there's an effort in the United States to basically get halal meat recognized as kosher meat so that the federal government protects it, just like it protects kosher meat. And also there's efforts that says when a person gets married um, in the United States or overseas, they do what's called a nikah, rather than maybe necessarily like a, a, you know, a typical court appointed document. So that's kind of where some of these uh, issues come into play. Long story short, though, uh, I'm sure the audience is watching this, they probably already believe this. There is not sort of a global conspiracy by Muslims in the United States to implement Sharia law. Even if there was a global conspiracy to do that, we have protection in the United States. One of the protections called the Constitution of the <laughs> United States, right, which right. is what prevents the majority of the U.S. population who are, of course, Christians. You know, there's there's not uh, an effort. Or there's no fear that Christian religious law is going to take over the U.S. Constitution. Why? Because we have protections already in place. So, um, so those are something that I would definitely encourage the audience to be aware of uh, and, and to really consider as they're, you know, trying to understand Sharia and its implication within the United States. Well, Faison, it's been delightful to hear from you and to get to know who you are and what you are up to in our community and in our state. So thank you for your work, for your witness, uh, for being a good neighbor. And we look forward to knowing you more and working together in the years ahead. And thanks for being on Good God.
Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Bet. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2021 by Faith Commons.